Good morning. I hope that you guys are doing well today, wherever you may be watching from. I hope that uh, as you've been hunkered down potentially in the midst of the pandemic, I know for some of you guys that haven't been able to make it back to campus, uh, I hope that this time hasn't been too lonely for you. I know that uh, loneliness has been a big problem for a lot of people as uh, we've gone through this quarantine time and really I know it's been a major problem in our society even before uh, this whole COVID thing hit. Um, it's amazing. We kind of live in a society that in some ways it seems like we have more opportunity to be able to connect with each other than ever before. You know, transportation is easy. We have all sorts of technology that's designed to help us to connect with one another. Yet, if you look at our society, uh, you can see that there's still this rampant epidemic of loneliness. I was looking into some studies that were done on this and there was a study done a couple years ago uh, that said loneliness has doubled since the 1980s uh, to where we are today. Now, I don't know exactly how you quantify something like that. I know there's researchers out there that try and do that kind of thing, but that's what they've said. Uh, there was a sur survey conducted within the past year that said that 46% uh, of people either always feel lonely or sometimes feel lonely. And really, regardless of what you think about any of these kind of surveys or data that's collected on the idea of loneliness, it really doesn't take anyone to convince you that it's a problem. And I would think that because you've probably experienced it. I actually don't know of anyone that hasn't gone through uh, times where they feel like they were isolated and, and cut off from other people from having any sort of meaningful connection. Even if you're physically present with others, I think it can still be very easy to sometimes feel lonely on like a almost soul type of level. And this is a tough place to be in, even if it's just for a short period of time. Loneliness actually has a really big effect on us. Doctors have been looking into the way that it can affect your body physically. And there's some interesting findings that they've uh, come up with as well. Uh, one study showed that loneliness can actually increase your risk of cardiovascular disease by 30%. And to give a frame of reference, that's about as bad as someone who's smoking 15 cigarettes a day. That's how much that would increase uh, your chance of cardiovascular disease. Uh, or it's the same as if you were obese. Um, there's a researcher whose name is uh, Julianne Holt Ludsend, and she's a BYU psychologist. She said that there is robust evidence that social isolation and loneliness significantly increase risk for premature mortality, and the magnitude of the risk exceeds that of many leading health indicators. <clears throat> so loneliness actually takes a toll on your body. But even aside from that, we know, man, it, it just almost seems to take more of a toll on us mentally and emotionally and spiritually. And these are, I think, the areas where we can almost experience the most pain as we're going through times of loneliness. So this morning, as we continue through our provider series, we're going to be looking at the way that God provides for us in our loneliness. And we're specifically going to be looking at someone who was in a very lonely time in his life and see what God did to reach out to him in that time. So let's pray, and then we'll dive into what we're going to talk about for today. <clears throat> God, we love you, and we thank you that you are with us. I think about um, the many names that we see for you in Scripture, but uh, one, one of them that you told us to call Jesus by is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And we talk about that and think about that at Christmas a lot of the time, but uh, really it's something that we should think about all the time that you are a God who is with us. And so, Lord, this morning I pray that wherever we may be, even if we're scattered uh, physically, that we would be 
acutely aware of your presence, the way that you've connected us to yourself and the way that you've connected us to each other. Help us to focus on what you have to say to us this morning. Lord, we love you and we pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. All right, so before we dive into the main text that we're going to get into today, I actually just want to kind of go off of what I was praying about there, which is this idea that God is a relational God. He isn't a God that just created everything and then kind of shoved the universe off in a corner and forgot about it and said, good luck figuring things out on your own. Rather, we see that God is as a very relational God. And by that, I mean, he desires relationship with the people that he's created. And specifically with us as humans, the people he's created in his own image. And there's all sorts of evidence for this throughout the Bible. But one of the biggest places we see this is in the way that God makes covenants with people. And... uh, We see this covenant that he made with the people of Israel, where he was specifically saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. And so when God's saying, I'll be your God, he's saying, I'm going to be the God that that watches over you, that provides for you, that protects you, and that teaches you how to live. He gives them this gift of the law that he delivers through Moses, and he is doing everything that he should be as being God, their provider, their protector, and their authority. But he also said, I will be your God and you will be my people. It's a relational thing. That the the people have a responsibility to the Lord. That they are supposed to follow him obediently and seek after him and worship him. And do the things that he asks of them. Now, God did a great job and always does a great job of holding up on his end of the covenant. But we see all throughout the Old Testament that Israel had a really, really hard time with holding up on their end of the covenant. And so even though God was a good God to them, they would struggle mightily and oftentimes fail miserably with being his people that live obediently with him. Now, he didn't just give up on them, though. Uh, What God would do as they would would go through these difficult times is he would oftentimes send prophets. And prophets were people that their main goal was really to call people back to faithfulness to the Lord. A lot of the time when we think of the word prophet, we think of somebody that kind of foretells the future. And, And the prophets did do that every now and then. But by and large, their primary function was actually simply to call people back to what God had already said. They were almost always people that were looking at the disobedience of God's people and that they felt a specific and special burden from the Lord to go and call people back to obedience and correct them in the ways that they were erring and following the Lord. Now, being a prophet could be a very, very lonely calling. Um, I don't know about you, I don't know how much experience you have with calling out sin in another person's life or showing them how they're messing up, but most people don't like that. And as you start to call out problems in in anybody's life, especially in uh, people that are in powerful positions and people that aren't used to being told what to do, there can be a lot of pushback against that. And so you see consistently that the prophets actually had a very, very difficult job. And oftentimes it was a very, very lonely job. People didn't really want them around because they didn't like what they had to say. As they were saying, hey, turn back to God or else there's going to be death and destruction that's coming. A lot of people don't want to hang out around a person like that. And so, just to give you some insight into the loneliness that some of these guys would feel, I want to read for you a passage from the book of Jeremiah, who was one of these prophets. He said this in Jeremiah 20, uh, verses 7 through 8. You deceived me, Lord, and I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. I am ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out, proclaiming violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. 
All right, now, God doesn't deceive. He doesn't lie. It's not like he told Jeremiah something different than what the truth was. But when Jeremiah, he, what he's doing here, he's hurting. He's pouring out his heart. He's saying, God, this is the way that I feel. And when he's saying that God deceived him, I don't think it means that God actually lied, but that he feels almost as though he was deceived because he didn't really realize how difficult of a calling he was getting into. When he decided that he would respond to the Lord and that he would go and call out sin in Israel and try and turn them back to the Lord, he, he was... I think surprised, actually, by how difficult that was. He says, but God, you overpowered me. There was nothing he could do to help but be faithful to the call that God had put on his life. But we see here that what was that call? He was calling out, whenever I speak, I cry out proclaiming violence and destruction. And so what happens? That word of the Lord brought him insult and reproach all day long. He became an outcast. People didn't want him around. People would actually, there was even a point where they physically assaulted him. Now, the closest thing that I can compare some of the, the uh, difficulty that Jeremiah was facing might be to some of the street preachers that we probably see on campus. Now, I'm not comparing them perfectly by any means. Uh, street preachers in and of themselves aren't good or bad. Sometimes there's good ones. Sometimes there's bad ones. It depends on what they're preaching. Um, a lot of the time, particularly when the bad ones come, though, uh, you will see that there are these massive crowds that form out. I don't know if you've been on campus when this has happened, but uh, they'll come and they come with these signs that are pointing out all of these various sins, and they start to preach to the crowd, and they get people fired up, and people start hurling insults at them and, and and people get really upset you know I've seen uh, demonstrations of, of all different kinds people stripping off various articles of clothing I've seen uh, men kissing men in front of them to try and anger them about homosexuality and all sorts of kind of stuff it, it's kind of an ugly scene what happens there and I'm not I'm not endorsing a lot of the teaching that some of those guys give because I think oftentimes they don't preach gospel and they only preach change your behavior but what I have noticed that it's an ugly scene is that as they're preaching to the crowd, sometimes they're saying things are sin that are not actually sin. Sometimes they're saying things that's off. But I've also noticed that a lot of what they're preaching actually is true. There are, there's a lot of it that is good. There's a lot of it where they are warning people about legitimate sin that's in their life and legitimate repentance that needs to happen. And they're warning of the legitimate wrath of God that is going to come upon sinners. And what I often see is a crowd that mocks that, that laughs at that, that wants them gone, that makes fun of them as much as they can. And this is the kind of reaction that the prophets received as they would preach that God's wrath was coming for those that didn't sin, uh, for those that lived in sin and those that didn't repent. And so maybe that helps give you a little bit more of a picture of what the life was for some of these guys as they were calling out uh, repentance and a return to faithfulness to the Lord. I wanted to read that passage from Jeremiah for you to give you an idea of the anguish that he would experience. And it's clear that he experienced a lot of loneliness as a social outcast. The passage actually goes on further to where he talks about cursing the day of his birth and even cursing uh, the, the guy that gave the news to his, his parents that he was going to be born and wishing that he had been aborted and never been born in the first place. Jeremiah gives us, he wrote in a way that gives us a really powerful look at his internal struggles. But this morning, we're actually going to be looking at a, uh, a colleague, or not really a colleague, someone that went before Jeremiah, but had the same office, a prophet. 
and his name was Elijah. Um, Elijah lived before Jeremiah, as I said, but he had a similar calling and that it was his job to uh, call the people of God back into obedience when they had strayed from him. So we're introduced to Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17. And during this time, Israel had this really wicked king whose name was Ahab. And Ahab had this really wicked wife whose name was Jezebel. They were not worshipers of the Lord, even though they they should have been. Instead, they were worshipers of a false god named Baal. And Baal was the uh, uh, local Canaanite god that people saw as the god of rain. He was responsible for bringing rains and bringing in, uh, which of course bring in crops and economic prosperity. So essentially, we see that Ahab really want what he really wants is economic prosperity, and he led his people astray to worship Baal and, and this false god in an attempt to bring that about. And we can laugh today about this idea of worshiping idols. It seems so silly and stupid to us, and it is. But just because our idol worship looks different today, I, I wouldn't think that we're delivered from that as 21st century enlightened people. You see, we may not carve out idols of wood or stone, but I do think that we worship other idols. And frankly, the idol that we worship here in the United States quite often is very similar to the one that they were worshiping in Baal back in that time. You see, they worship Baal because they thought that he could bring in economic prosperity. <clears throat> and when I learned that Baal was the god of rain for the Canaanites, I thought, man, that's very similar to the god that so many Americans worship really caring more about their own economic prosperity than anything else, certainly more so than their faithfulness to the Lord. So sure, our idol worship might look a little bit different, but at the heart, I think that it's actually very similar. And so God sees his people being corrupted and being led astray into this and being guilty for this. And rain is what the people want, and they think Baal can bring that. So God actually sends Elijah to Ahab with this message we see in 1 Kings 17 uh, verse 1. As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. This is how we're introduced to Elijah, that he comes here and he says, you know what, this Baal God that you worship that brings all this rain that you think, I'm going to show you that the Lord is God. There's actually not going to be any uh, rain over these next few years, except by the word of the Lord. And so God holds true to his promise. Uh, Elijah goes off. uh, He starts to live in some obscure places. Ahab is furious with him, and he's trying to send out men to kill all the prophets of God. Him and his wife Jezebel are, and they certainly want to catch Elijah. But Elijah's off living in obscure places, and they're not able to find him. However, three years into the drought, Uh, God calls Elijah to go back and to speak to Ahab again. So Elijah goes and he finds Ahab's servant Obadiah, who Obadiah was actually a good, faithful worshiper of the Lord. And uh, Elijah finds him and he says, hey, go get your your, uh, king Ahab. I need to speak with him. And Obadiah thinks this is a crazy request. He's like, dude, the, the king has been trying to kill you. If I go get him and you like don't show up, then I'm gonna get killed. So he doesn't like the idea, but eventually he goes and does it anyway. Elijah promises that he's not going to run. So we're going to pick this up in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 16, which is where we see this interaction between Elijah and Ahab. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When, we saw, when he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. 
Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. All right, so we have the stage set here for a dramatic showdown between Elijah, the prophet of God, and these 450 prophets of Baal. Now, I don't know if you've ever been outnumbered 450 to 1. I know I have not found myself personally in that situation, but I can imagine that that is an incredibly lonely place to be. 450 to 1. Elijah says, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets that's left here. And, and not only is he lonely in that he's outnumbered 450 to 1, but he's in a very risky position here, right? Like Ahab and Jezebel have been trying to kill all of the Lord's prophets. Now he shows up right in front of them and he puts himself in a position where he is completely and utterly desperate for God to move. There is no escape plan. Like he, he comes up with this thing where he says, we're going to make these sacrifices and fire from, from the sky needs to come down and consume this sacrifice. And if that doesn't happen, then Elijah's probably going to die. Uh, I mean, he, he's going to make a fool of himself, and he's going to make it look like God doesn't respond to his requests either. So this is a really, really high-stakes scenario that we see Elijah actually setting up here with these prophets of Baal. So Elijah lets the prophets of Baal go first. And uh, they set their altar up, and they start to cry out to Baal. And as you would expect, nothing happens. And so they cry out and they cry out and they, they even start to cut themselves with knives and whip themselves and in hopes that somehow this is going to get Baal to respond. But after several hours of this nonsense, still, of course, nothing happens. Baal isn't doing anything. And the people start to lose interest in watching what's happening as well. And so... After hours of this, Elijah finally gets the attention of the people, and he's ready for his turn. So he has the people pour water on his altar, because remember, we're trying to light it with fire. So just, he dumps all sorts of water over it to make it even harder for this thing to catch fire. And then we read this, starting in verse 36. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God! The Lord, He is God! Then Elijah commanded them, 
Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go, eat and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. God showed himself to be the true God that day. I mean, can you imagine being there? This incredible scene of uh, these, these two different prophets having this, this showdown, trying to get God to answer. And all of a sudden, there's this miraculous fire that falls that comes down from heaven and consumes the sacrifice that Elijah prepared. And the only reasonable way to respond to that is to, to agree that Elijah's God is God. And so that's exactly what the people do. They, uh, they cry this out. And uh, now they go and they actually seize the prophets of Baal. And they actually kill them, which I'm going to get to that here in a second. Because I know that's a difficult passage for us. Um, but I actually think that that was an important thing that they did because in that they are showing, the people are showing that they have a genuine repentance. Remember that it hasn't rained for a few years here in the land of Israel. And God in this process is trying to show the people of Israel that he is God and Baal is not. So first, God, uh, Baal, this God of the rain, is supposed to make it rain and he fails to for years. And now he has this dramatic showdown where there's supposed to be a, a fire that consumes a sacrifice and Baal can't do that but God can. And so finally, the hearts of the people of Israel start to turn back to the Lord. And with that, we see their repentance in a few uh, different ways here. First, that they call out and declare that the Lord is God. But second, that they go and get all the prophets of Baal and they slaughter them there in the valley. Now, as I was saying, that is a really like difficult thing for us to handle, um, especially as Christians. I mean, that seems like a very unchristlike thing to go and, and slaughter these people. Um, I get you. I, I think that that's difficult as well. But I think there's a few things that we need to take into account to understand why this was an appropriate response. Um, the first is that this was actually the penalty that was in the law for somebody that led the people of Israel astray towards worshiping false gods. Uh, this is what God said in his law in Deuteronomy chapter 13 verses 1 through 5. If a prophet or one who, fore who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a sign or wonder, and if the sign or wonder spoken of takes place and the prophet says, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them, you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. It is the Lord your God you must follow and him you must revere. Keep his commands and obey him. Serve him and hold fast to him. That prophet or dreamer must be put to death for inciting rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. That prophet or dreamer tried to turn you from the way of the Lord your, your God commanded you to follow. You must purge the evil from among you. Okay, so as you can see, this is what God's saying. Hey, the, the holiness that you have and the devotion that you have to me as a people is so significant. It's going to be so significant for your life, not just your quality of life, but your physical life and for the, the worship that God desires that you actually need to purge false prophets out of your midst. 
that are leading you astray. And as I said, I know that's a difficult teaching for us. Part of that is because we are under a different covenant than what they were under the old covenant. While this was an appropriate response for them and the law that God had given them, that is not the kind of behavior that God has called us to as new covenant people under the church. Uh, Romans 12 kind of speaks to this, 17 to 19. It says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. So, this kind of teaching kind of helps us understand as Christians that we're not under the same kind of uh, responsibilities that they had in the old covenant to try and purge the, the evil out amongst them. They were living in a theocracy where God's law was actually the law of the land. Um, and they were supposed to be creating a community that was representative of God's kingdom. The way that we live now as Christians is slightly different from that. And so we have a kind of a different set of rules when it comes to some of the things like that. And so I think that's why this can be difficult for us to process. Uh, but the other thing that we have to take into account here for why this response was appropriate is because, remember that prior to this, there was a wide-scale slaughter of the Lord's prophets. Uh, Jezebel and Ahab had been taking all of them out systematically. And so we don't know specifically if the prophets of Baal uh, were involved directly in this, if they were the ones carrying out the murders or not. But at the very least, they were hugely influential in the ideology that was behind it, and may have even been involved in the actual acts themselves. So in some ways, you could say this was just retribution for what they had done in killing all of the Lord's prophets. Um, and then finally, I think that we also have to see here that God is very serious about punishing sin. Uh, he desires repentance. Ezekiel thirty-three eleven says, I take no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked, but rather that they would turn and repent. So that is God's first desire. But we also have to realize that a day does come when God's patience runs out for an individual and that they have to face his judgment. That may come at death or that may come at the time when Jesus returns. Uh, but sin will eventually be punished and will eventually be judged. And so for these particular people, that time had come for them. So after this showdown, God has proven his power. He brought rain, and you would think that everything was great, right? You think Elijah is uh, going to just be carried out of the wherever they did this on the hillside or whatnot, like on people's shoulders, and everyone's celebrating, and it's going to be this joyous occasion. The people are returning to the Lord, and all is right in Israel. But what happens next is actually kind of interesting. Uh, it's not what you would expect to happen. Some in Israel did turn their hearts back towards the Lord that day, but not everyone. We go on to read this in chapter 19, starting at verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom brush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. This is a strange thing for Elijah to be saying right after he just participated in one of the most amazing sequences that we see probably in all of Scripture. 
Right? What, what an incredible triumph and, and display of God's power that he was able to just be a part of. Yet, what we see is after that, he's actually still running for his life. And he's at the point where he just wants to die. Uh, he says, God, I'm, I'm tired of life. Just take it from me. I'm no better than my ancestors. Now, why is it? Why would Elijah be feeling this way? Even after this moment of great triumph, I mean, sure, Jezebel and, and Ahab were, were pursuing him and wanted to, to kill him, but he had, had just been a part of this amazing display of God's power. What, what fear was there to have of these puny people that want to oppose the Lord? Now, I have to speculate a little bit here because we're not given a ton of detail for why Elijah is feeling the way that he is. But we do look at this statement where he says, Take my life, I'm no better than my ancestors. There's a lot of room for interpretation for what exactly he may have meant with that statement. But what I think he's getting at, given the circumstances, is that like he, he's just tired, he's exasperated, and frankly, he's lonely. Like someone we were talking about earlier. He's lonely because he feels like he is the only one that's truly zealous for the Lord. And when he says, I'm no better than my ancestors, I think he's thinking about all these other people that have tried to faithfully lead Israel back to the Lord and the people were just, they wouldn't have it, right? Like you think of Moses, who uh, God used to lead Israel out of slavery in Egypt with the 10 plagues, and yet all the, the people just grumbled all the time. And they were afraid to go in and take the promised land. They refused to at first, and they had to wander in the desert for another 40 years. And, and you know, you think of the judges where God would raise up these judges for Israel to help them in a time of need and the people would turn back to the Lord for a little bit but then they would fall back into disobedience and so as Elijah is thinking about his ancestors that went before him in these times I think he's saying I'm just like them I'm I'm trying to do this I'm trying to turn people back to you but frankly it's not working I feel alone I feel like I'm the only one that really cares I'm the only one that's zealous for the Lord you would think that these people would have like risen up and dethroned Jezebel and Ahab or something like that but but no like here I am I'm still on the run for my life and nobody seems to care and so I think that that's why Elijah felt this. I think he felt very alone, not just physically as he was on the run, but I think he felt alone emotionally and spiritually. Like, is there anyone else that really loves God? God sees Elijah in his distress. And he sends an angel to give him some food. He get, the angel gives him some food and water. And then he, he, Elijah gets up. And this must have been some sort of like special food or whatever that's incredibly powerful because he gets up and he commences on a 40-day journey to Mount Oreb or Mount Sinai is another name for that mountain, the one where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. This is about a 200-mile trek that he would start on from where he was in Beersheba. And so he goes on this journey and uh, when he finally gets to this mountain, we're going to pick that up here in... Uh, 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 9, says, There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. So see, we get a little bit more insight into here for why Elijah is feeling so bad. He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord, but the Israelites have rejected the covenant. They're tearing down your altars. They're, they're, they're killing the prophets. I'm the only one left. We, we can sense the loneliness that he has there. 
Not just that he's the only prophet, but that no one else really seems to care about the covenant of the Lord. He was physically lonely as he's out on the run in the wilderness. He's living in a cave right now, and he was spiritually lonely. And in some ways, I think that that's the kind of loneliness that almost hurts the worst. When you have something that you care so deeply about and that means so much to you, and yet you look around and nobody else seems to care at all. They're just apathetic about it, maybe even opposed to it. It can almost be enough to drive you mad. And so God responds to Elijah. He says this in verse 11. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel, and anoint Elisha son of Shaphat from Abel Mehaloah to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all those whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. In this interaction, God meets Elijah. He knows exactly what Elijah needs. Elijah's in despair. He feels lonely. He feels like he's the only one that cares about the Lord and he's isolated. And so God comes and gives Elijah exactly what I need, what, I, what he needs. And what I mean by that is he gives him fellowship. First off, God gives Elijah fellowship with himself. He says, Elijah, I want you to go out and stand on the mountain. I'm about to pass by. And Elijah gets to, I, I don't even know that I fully understand the magnitude of what's going on there, right? Like the Lord is speaking to him. He says, I'm about to, about to pass by. Something significant is happening here, right? Moses had a similar type of opportunity where he got to see uh, God pass by and, and see the back of him. And, and so the Lord starts to show up. He manifests himself in some incredible way. And you, but you would expect, actually, that he's manifesting himself in the wind and the earthquake and the fire and all this kind of stuff. But the text is explicitly telling us the Lord wasn't in those things. Now, I don't have time to get into all of the, the potential of what exactly that might mean there, that the Lord uh, was not in that. But what we do see is it seems like the way that the Lord chooses to speak to Elijah is not through the wind, not through the earthquake, not through the fire, but rather in a gentle whisper that comes after all of those kinds of things. What could be meant by this? Well, I think that what we see is God is speaking to him in this gentle whisper. Is first off, he wants Elijah to know that, I'm, that he's here, that he's with him. That even if everybody else is abandoned, hey, you can come out and you can speak with me and I want to speak with you. 
But also what I think that is, is showing is this is representative of the fact that God is at work in Israel. Even if it doesn't seem obvious, right? The obvious things like the wind and the fire and the earthquake, those are the, the types of things you would expect. Sometimes you, you want to see God work in some big and flashy manner. And if you don't see that, you think he's not at work at all. But instead, he's there in the gentle whisper. And it's in that that I think he's trying to communicate to Elijah, hey, I'm at work even though you don't see it easily here right now. And I think that that's what he's communicating because of what he goes on to tell him. That there's still 7,000 in Israel that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. And, and that there are these two kings that you're going to anoint. And they're going to go up and they're going to fight against this Baal worship. And there's this guy named Elisha that you're going to go and find. And he's going to replace you as a prophet. And so God is helping him see, hey, it's not just that I'm, I'm offering you relationship with myself, which I'm giving you by even speaking to you and passing by here. But also I'm giving you relationship with others. You're not actually alone, Elijah. There are other people out there. Now, whether that 7,000 in Israel is an actual number of 7,000 people or whether it's symbolic, I'm not sure. I'd probably lean towards symbolic because seven is such a symbolic number in Scripture of completeness. And so I, I think that God is talking about, I have the complete remnant of people that are mine, that I know who they are. They haven't bowed the knee to Baal. And they're out there, Elijah, even if you don't see them right now. Now, our lives might not be as dramatic as Elisha's, and we, we may not uh, feel as, as distant or lonely sometimes as he did. I can only imagine being a man that was out, you know, on the run for his life and living in the wilderness and staying in a cave and having people trying to kill me, all this kind of stuff. But I think that we can still feel loneliness in a very significant way. And just as God didn't want Elijah to be lonely and wanted him to draw his attention to the fact that, Elijah, I'm here with you. And there are other people out there too. Frankly, I think that God does the same thing in our lives. You see, God gives us fellowship with himself. This is actually the crux of the Christian message. That So often I talk to people, that, that I ask them if they're Christians, they say yes, and they tell me that, I ask them what that means, and they say, well, it just means you're a good person, you try and treat people right. That's not the essence of Christianity. Like, yes, it's totally good to do that, we need to do that, but the essence of Christianity is the fact that God has, has made us uh, be able to enter into a relationship with Himself. This is, the, this is what the cross comes down to. Because frankly, we are separated from God by our sin. He is perfectly holy and we are not. And our sin creates a chasm that there is no sort of good work that we could do. There's nothing we could do to work ourselves back to a perfect and holy God. But what God said on the cross is that I want you. And so just as Jesus said, he said that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. So God comes down, he, he puts on flesh, he walks among us, and he dies on the cross for our sins. And as he is dying on the cross for his sins, for our sins, the wrath of God is being poured out on him. So that everything that we've done that separates us from God is being punished on the cross, and the perfect life that Jesus lived is being transferred to those who have faith in him. And so now that chasm has been bridged by the cross of Christ, and that we are actually able to be brought into fellowship with God. This is this amazing thing where uh, John 1 talks about that as many as believe in him, he gives the right to become children of God. Because we're no longer guilty of our sin because it's already been paid for by Christ. In 1 John 1.3, the Apostle John wrote this, We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you 
also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. He's saying we have fellowship with God Himself. And this is what is offered to us in the Gospel. No matter how physically lonely you may be, you end up in a prison in solitary confinement, something like that, let, let it always be burned into your mind that God is with you. And you have fellowship with Him wherever you may be. But because our God is good and generous and awesome, as if the gift of fellowship with Himself is not already enough, He lavishes us with even more. And He gives us fellowship with each other. God gave us the church. He knows that following Him is difficult, but He's designed it to be something that we get to do together in community with others. And this is really, really important. God desires that we do this together, that we would really press into each other and have a depth of relationship that I think is so much deeper than what we generally understand the church to be. Listen to this prayer that Jesus prayed for us in John 17. He says this. This is shortly before He was about to be betrayed. My prayer is not for them alone. He's talking about his disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus is praying, God, I want them to be one. I want them to be one the way that you and I are one. Like, think about that closeness that Jesus is praying for. For us to be brought together into complete unity. This is so much more than I want your people to get together and sing songs and listen to a sermon on Sunday mornings. That's not God's design for the church. Like, don't get me wrong, that's great. I love coming together and singing songs and listening to sermons. I love preaching sermons. I think there's great value in that. I love being able to do this. But this cannot be the extent of what we are as the church. We are called to be people that are actually brought together into real unity. We, we so often sell ourselves short of the kind of bond that God wants us to have with each other. And frankly, I think it makes sense that Satan would attack the church in this area. That he would try and get us to settle for something so much less than the fellowship that God designed for us. Why? Because that fellowship is actually a very, very powerful thing. You know, even in Jesus' prayer, he was talking about, he wants us to be one so that the world would know that you sent me. Saying, our unity as the church and our love for each other as a church is an incredibly powerful witness to the world. And so if Satan can diminish our unity of the church and diminish our love for one another, then he diminishes the evangelistic effectiveness that we're able to have in the world. And so, unfortunately, I would say most of the time people's experience with church is that it's actually not something that's really that life-changing in the fellowship. I remember I was reading a book from Francis Chan called Letters to the Church where he was really just trying to uh, encourage the church to be the church, to step out into what God has really called us to be, especially with regard to the way that we love one another. And he talked about a friend of his that was uh, in a gang formerly. And he went to jail, and when he was in jail, he became a Christian. And when he got out of jail, he was really excited to be able to be involved in a local church for the first time. 
And yet when he got involved with the church, he actually ended up being really disappointed because he compared it to the kind of fellowship that he had in his gang, the kind of commitment that he saw in his gang, the, the way that the gang members would stand up for one another and sacrifice for one another and fight for one another, even though they were doing horrible and awful things, they had one another's backs. And he's like, how much greater should this be in the church that we can have that same, even greater sacrifice for one another, love for one another, st st uh, sticking up for one another, but also we don't have to have all that other terrible stuff that uh, the gang was centered around. But what he really saw rather was kind of a lackadaisical commitment that people had. Eh, I'll make it to the Bible study when I can. I'll make it to the Sunday service when I can. And even if I do make it to those, that's really the extent of what our life is together. It's like, man, this is, the, the gang made the fellowship of this look, uh, the gang made the fellowship look a lot better than, than what the church is doing. May we never be put to shame by something like that. You see, when we read the scriptures, we see this incredibly vibrant church that had incredibly close fellowship with one another. I don't think that there's any church that has fully arrived at where God wants us to be with the unity that we have for each other. Frankly, I actually think our church is a great church that I love being a part of. And I, I love the fact that there's so, such a deep commitment to one another here that I see. But I think that we can grow a lot. And, and I'm not perfect at that. I know you're not perfect at that. But I hope that we're willing to try and strive more towards the kind of unity that God wants us to have with each other. So in response to this, the, the, the fact that we see that God provides for us in our loneliness, that he provides for us fellowship with himself and fellowship with each other. What is it that we can do to actually take advantage of that? The, the first thing I'd say, we need to be people that press into our relationship with God. He has offered fellowship with himself, but do we take advantage of that? James 4, 8 says, come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Isaiah 55, 6-7 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God, for he will freely pardon. There are a couple unifying things that I see about those verses here. The first is that if we seek God and his fellowship, he will respond to us, right? Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. But I, the other thing I see that is, is the same about them is that we draw near through repentance. You see in both those things, in the James verse, he says, Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Wash your hands, you sinners. And we see the same kind of thing in Isaiah. where he's saying, let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. If we want to be people that actually press into our relationship with God and have fellowship, deep fellowship with Him, we have to be people that are serious about repentance and weeding out sin in our lives. Because that's the kind of thing that obscures the way that we're able to connect with the Lord. We can also draw near to the Lord through practicing spiritual disciplines. We've talked about this a lot. Kyle uh, talked a lot last week, did a great job speaking about the value of pressing into God's truth. And, and listening, reading his scriptures and listening to the Spirit. We need to be doing things like that. We need to be people of prayer and scripture reading and fasting and, and people that get time alone with the Lord. And as we do these kind of things and as we repent of sin, we're going to draw nearer to him and he's going to draw near to us. But also, we want to be people that press into our relationships with each other. 
And this is something that is really fun, but that actually takes a lot of work too. Like real deep relationships with another with other people, there is something that's very natural about the way they form, but there's also something that's very intentional about the way they form. And so what I would say is that the, there's really four major things I want to say we need to do if we want to be people that really press into each other. And the first is that we have to commit the time to do it. You know, if all we're seeing is each other once a week, maybe twice a week, that's probably not going to be conducive to being able to uh, really experience deep, deep fellowship with another person. I look at the early church. Acts 2.46 says, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. So see, I'm not saying that we need to have church service every day or we need to have life group every day. But what I'm saying is as the church, we we should be involved in each other's lives daily. That's what we see here. They're meeting together in the temple courts. So they're having, you know, kind of worship services there probably uh, of some sort. But also they're breaking bread in each other's homes. They're eating together with glad and sincere hearts. We need to be people that share like all the regular stuff of life together. We also need to be people that are vulnerable. You can't really achieve true depth with somebody unless you're willing to be serious and real about who you actually are and what's going on under the surface. James um, tells us, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you might be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. How can we pray for each other if we're not vulnerable with each other? How can, we, how can we really know how to be praying for one another? And so as James is telling us, hey, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other. Some of us might need to do that today. Where we need to say, I, I've got to confess to a brother or sister about what's going on in my life and ask them to pray for me. And as we have that kind of vulnerability, it's actually something that helps bond us deeper with one another. I would also say that if we want to have real, true fellowship with each other, the kind that obliterates the loneliness we so often feel, then we need to be people that are generous. This was a very clear distinctive of the early church. Listen to the kind of community they had here. We see in Acts 4, 32-35. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need." Now, this was their model. I'm not saying we have to replicate that exactly. But what we see is it's not surprising that they were super tied to one another because of the kind of open-handed generosity that they lived with. There wasn't any needy person among them. Like, they cared about each other in a way that it's like, hey, you have a need, I'm going to help meet it. And man, like, it's not hard to imagine why that community had such a powerful impact. Like, how could you feel alone when people are willing to be that kind of generous to meet each other's needs? And so I think as Christians today, whether we go towards a a form of actually living out of a communal purse the way they did or not, we do need to be people that live very open-handedly with our possessions and our money, that are really generous and that are really willing to support one another to make sure we're taking care of the needs in our community. And finally, not just financially, but we need to be helping each other in every way possible. Um, Galatians 6.2 says, Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Sometimes the burdens that are happening aren't just financial. They can't be fixed by being generous with money. But we can help shoulder burdens that other people have to bear. 
And we can do this through praying with them, sometimes even just being with them, going and being with someone as they're going through a difficult time, uh, being a shoulder to cry on or an ear to, to listen as someone speaks. Um, Whatever it may be, we're supposed to be people that walk through life with each other, and that's why we're able to carry one another's burdens. We help shoulder the load as, a, as various people in the community go through difficult times at different times. If we do these kind of things, how could you be a lonely person that's a part of a community like that? That, that is passionately and completely in love with God and always pointing you towards the love that He has for you, always directing you towards that fellowship, and then demonstrating it through our actions with one another. This is God's powerful design for the church. And guys, I don't think we're there yet, but man, I want to keep striving towards that. And my hope is that you guys would want to do that too, that we would be willing to commit to one another, that we commit to the Lord, that we commit to one another, that we want to be serious about pursuing fellowship with Him and about pursuing fellowship with each other. May we be a community where nobody feels lonely. And this is due to the fact that when people around us, they experience God, both in the way we speak about Him and point them to Him and in the way that we manifest that in our actions. I love you guys. I'm super thankful for you. I'm thankful to be a part of this community. And my prayer is that God will shape it more and more into a community that eradicates the loneliness that he doesn't want us to have and shows the fellowship that he wants us to have both with himself and with others. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are relational and that you love us, that you care for us, that you call us into relationship with yourself and that you call us into relationship with each other. Um, God, I pray that if anyone is experiencing loneliness right now, that you would just come right into that space, that you would show them that you're here, Lord. If there's people that are in a spot like Elijah where they're just having a hard time uh, seeing anyone else that's in their position, maybe they feel like people don't care about the same things that they care about, or maybe they're just even physically isolated as they're here in quarantine, whatever it may be, God, I just pray that you would speak into people's lives exactly where they are right now. Show them that you are there. Show them that you are at work, even if it's hard to see sometimes. And show them that you're there for us. And God, I pray for us as a community that we would be people that love each other really well from the heart, fervently. And God, may our unity and our love for one another be a great witness to the world. We love you. We thank you so much for who you are. And we pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen.